Hey everyone, this is Brian from the Tennis IQ Podcast. Josh and I hope that you are enjoying the content and discussions that we put out week after week. If you'd like to support the podcast and help us to continue to produce quality episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast slash membership. Currently, we have three tiers of support, the fan level at $3 per month, the supporter level at $7 per month, and the champion level at $20 per month. Benefits of joining the Tennis IQ podcast community include episode transcripts, participation in book club discussions, and access to monthly masterclasses with me and Josh. For more on these benefits of support, head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast slash membership. Thank you so much. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Ryan Lomax. And today we have a conversation for you with Ryan Redondo. So Ryan is the CEO and general manager of the Youth Tennis San Diego Barnes Tennis Center. And he's also the tournament director of the San Diego Open WTA 500. Ryan comes from a long tradition of tennis players in the San Diego area, almost like tennis royalty. And he is a former college and professional player. After his playing career, he went into coaching privately and at the collegiate level where he enjoyed a lot of success. He joined the Barnes Tennis Center as a CEO in May of 2020. And in this conversation, we talk to Ryan about his introduction to tennis, a bit about his playing career, uh, how he transitioned to college and and pro tennis, um, getting into his coaching philosophy, and then the mission of what they're doing at... um, Youth Tennis San Diego and the Barnes Tennis Center. I think you'll enjoy hearing about that mission and what they're really trying to do there. So this was a really very interesting and fascinating conversation, and I'm sure that you will all enjoy it. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Ryan Redondo. We are excited to welcome Ryan Redondo to the Tennis IQ podcast. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you guys. Awesome. Awesome. We are excited as well. Um, So we wanted to start off uh, this discussion today um, the way that we often do. um, And it would be great to to learn a little bit more about your you and your background. Um, Do you think you could tell us a little bit about, you know, your introduction to the sport, how how you started playing tennis and what a little bit about what some of that early journey looked like? Yeah. Yeah. So the early journey was pretty intense. I don't think I had uh um, a choice, <laughs> maybe I had a choice, but, um, you know, when I was, I was born 1983, my father was the head coach at San Diego state university. Um, and he was the oldest of nine kids, the Redondo kids. And they all, they really all played tennis at a very high level national champions. Uh, my uncle Walter Redondo was number one in the 18s, won Kalamazoo, um, played Arthur Ashe, John McEnroe on tour, all those guys. I had an aunt, my aunt Marita, uh, during the Virginia Slims times, was top 10 in the world, played all the Grand Slams. So um, I was introduced very early to tennis. Um, I would go to San Diego State and sit there all day long while my dad coached. Um, I'd hit on the wall. I'd go into the parking lot. I would play. So I would beg and cry to have all the team players play with me. So that's how I got started. And then I played junior tennis in Southern California. And um 
you know, took all the steps from there as a competitive player to playing for the U.S. national team, uh, playing futures, well, satellites back then, uh, and then playing college tennis. So, yeah, I, I was heavily involved. <laughs> for sure. And it, it seems like uh, I, I read a story of, a, you know, a transform, perhaps a transformative experience with you in 1989 yeah. on court with Henri Leconte. Yeah. You know, during a Davis Cup match. Can you tell us a little bit about that and and how maybe inspiring that was or transformative? Obviously, you already were in a tennis family, and so that yeah. was there. But yeah. what, what was that experience like? Yeah, so I think I j had just turned six, um, literally down the road from where I'm sitting right now at the sports arena um, at the Barnes Tennis Center right now. Um, yeah, six years old. And the backstory to that was my dad was the director of tennis at what was then the Le Meridian Resort, French resort on Coronado Island here in San Diego. When the U.S. drew France in the Davis Cup, they hosted it in San Diego. And because of some family connections with um, uh, Jean-Baptiste Chanfro, uh, who was a very, very prestigious uh, number one French tennis player um, who was um, part of our family with my Aunt Marita, um, we hosted the French team at my dad's resort and the club. So they practiced with us and stayed there. So I got to know Yannick Noah, Guy Forger, Henrik Kant. Um, and, you know, at six years old, I just watched them practice and they would hit with me. And during the match, uh, one of the Davis Cup, Davis, uh, Cup ties, uh, LeConte said, hey, come and sit with my wife on the court, you know, in the box. So I just sat there. Uh, McEnroe took a bathroom break. LeConte being the, you know, the, the showman he is, he grabbed me because he knew I could hit already because they had already been hitting with me at the resort, um, pulled me out in front of, I don't know, five, 8,000 people and just started hitting with me. And yeah, it was pretty good, but I'm using a racket that was like, his racket was so heavy. And, um, you know, so I'm hitting with him and the crowd loved it. Um, I think it was Roscoe Tanner who pulled me off and did an interview with me on ESPN. Nike sponsored me, you know, the next day. And that was that. <laughs> A pretty cool experience for a six-year-old. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was. And the crowd actually loved it. You know, so for me at six years old, really that was like, oh, I want to do that again. I want to play, in, you know, and so that was my drive to like, I want to be like these guys. Um, I just heard a crowd cheer for me, you know, every time I hit a backhand. So it was pretty cool. That's that's very cool. So was it, it sounds like that moment, um, I don't know if it jump-started things, but it sounds like that was, you know, part of the motivation to, um, you know, to, to maybe take tennis more seriously and to maybe think about, you know, may, maybe you weren't having these thoughts as a six-year-old, but yeah. to, to start, okay, I want to, you know, train and compete and play matches. Um, tell, can you tell us a little bit more about sort of that, that journey and, you know, w whatever parts you want to highlight, I guess, from, from that moment to, you know, playing in college and and then on the satellite tour. Yeah, I'll start with your first comment there was really, I actually, I was told you're going to be a pro, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. My dad was my coach at the time through juniors. So it was, you know, it was definitely ingrained in me, like this is what you can do. Um, you know, by 10 years old, I was number one in Southern California, winning sectionals and all these tournaments. And, you know, as a young kid, you, when you're intrinsically competitive like that, it's just kind of that motivator. Right. So by 11, I'm playing zonals and all these big USTA things. And I, at 11 years old, I think they flew me out to what was then Key Biscayne, where the national 
uh, campus was or what you want to say, doing trainings. And so I just got in that mode where I loved it. I see that I'm one of the best in the country. I really enjoyed competing and playing. Um, it was intense, though, as a, as a kid with your dad as a coach and a lot of expectations um, from a family that was really successful in the sport to then, you know, getting sent to uh, Le Petita in Tarbes, France at 13 with uh, Travis Rettenmeyer. We we won it in doubles. Hmm. Um, so, you know, expectations start to come from there um, and traveling around the world. You know, by 15, I actually got my first ATP points, which is pretty young back then. Um, and so it was, uh, it was you know, definitely a upward trend of development. I can tell you by 17 or so, by senior year in high school with even heavier expectations, um, I struggled a bit, you know, towards the end of juniors, um, up and down, going to college, you know, thinking, well, I should be going pro because I was so good before, but it's all relative. You know, you plateau and you have to take different steps and stages. Um, so I ended up going to college and I, I started at Pepperdine University. We had a great team. Um, I think the year before they finished second in the country under Peter Smith, we got to the the sweet 16. I finished a year early. I was 17 years old, uh, playing back when there really wasn't an age, uh, limit. So on my team, there was 28 year olds, 27 year olds, 20, you know, I was a child and that was hard for me, you know, in, in tennis, you know, and, and coming from somebody that expected a lot from myself. I expected to win everything. If you didn't win, you're a loser. You know, that was my take back then. Um, and so I struggled a lot and then um, it ended up transferring to San Diego State and really had a pivotal moment where um, my focus changed, my training changed, my outlook changed. And really to me, like freshman year, which was great for me, you know, Peter Smith and I are, are very close now to then trans, uh, transferring to play for John Nelson, um, was just really pivotal in my development. Yeah. And what, what exactly do you think was that pivotal moment? Because, you know, you're, <clears throat> you're talking about the struggle from 17 into yeah. college. It's a, it's a tough time for our young people. Yeah. Um, you know, you're good at a sport, but you're not necessarily mature, yeah. you know, mentally and, and emotionally. Was there something that um, really clicked at San Diego State that was, excuse me, really important for you to, you know, take yourself to another level? There was, yeah. So I would say parallel to my tennis playing by about 13 years old, I started on somewhat of like a spiritual religious path. You know, my mom started to take me to a, a church in in um, San Diego and in Encinitas what, that really focused on meditation and visualization. So I was really doing that parallel to tennis, but I wasn't using it in tennis, Right. And, and that was, that wasn't a part of coaching, as you guys know, it wasn't, you know, it was very physical, you know, it was very like, you got to work hard to be good. There wasn't an extra emphasis on uh, coaching, at least for me. And so when I went to San Diego state, John Nelson, um, he was the head coach then, you know, he brought those two paths together and he not, he didn't do just do that for me, but that's how he coached. That was his philosophy. So we meditated before every match. We meditated before practices. We did visualization techniques on the road, in the airplane, before bed. We did jujitsu. We didn't play tennis for weeks at a time. And that transformed my development and my mindset into um, becoming more present and controlling what I can control 
and accepting myself a bit more and just saying, okay, this is what I can do right now. And I have the tools to do that. That really changed a lot. And, and that's very vague what I'm saying, but that was that moment, you know, and, and I would attribute what I learned then to why and where I am now and what I want to do with my life now from, from those times. Excellent. Yeah. I think that's, that's very interesting. And it sounds like, yeah, some of those earlier moments at, at the church with, you know, meditation and visualization. Um, yeah, it, it sounds like though they were disconnected at the time, right. You weren't necessarily yeah. applying that to sort of the, your approach to the sport at the time. It sounds like, you know, once you transferred and once you were in that environment where, you know, those sorts of ideas and, you know, breathing and jujitsu and, um, you know, and, and different things like that were more prioritized that maybe that all started to connect at that point. Um, and then you mentioned something yeah. interesting that that, you know, it sounds like some of those experiences were were formative in terms of, you know, the work that you do today and sort of your outlook and goals uh, currently. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when, when, when I think about those times and just talking about it openly, I don't talk about it a lot. Um, you know, the, the fear of losing and the fear of risk taking and, and, and pushing and, and fighting, right. Those are the kind of things that make you a successful competitor. Some, some of the things. And I think that's, what's really helped me now is, okay, this is what I can handle right now. Um, I have these huge goals. I have these, these visions. How do I take them, you know, one step at a time. And it's, it, it's a, I attribute mental toughness to self-efficacy, right? So I know what I can do right now because I've done it a lot and I've trained myself. So that's what I'm doing now. That's, and, and I still think back, okay, what would I have done when I played or competed? I still compete in Padel and, and, and whatnot. And I still try to use those things. Um, but those are the values that we try to, um, at least within the programs we have here and, and the business that I'm running, you know, we do a lot. Um, and that's what, you know, those are the values I come back to and the tools. Um, you know, I run three businesses and major events and whatnot. And people are like, how are you going to do all of that? But it's it goes back to those times of segmenting. This is what I can do right now. This is what I can do right now. And it's just kind of over and over again and and not going towards things I can't do. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't know if I answered your question, but, you know, that's how I that's how I see it in my mind. It, it seems also, Ryan, that um, you've really shifted a lot toward purpose, you know, what you're doing at Barnes and maybe even with Padel and, and even just becoming a coach. There's, you know, yep. there's purpose there in terms of helping people, you know, become better tennis players, become better competitors, but also become better people. And, yep. I, and I, I read a story about, you know, your first day as CEO of Barnes and you sat beneath a photograph, I believe, of your great grandmother uh, mm -hmm. winning like a sportsmanship award. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm curious on, you know, maybe how that has shaped you, just like maybe developing character of players and young people and in, in, in the purpose that's bringing to your life and to your mission at, at Barnes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. It's all about people, you know, for, for me, uh, running, running uh, businesses now is the same as, as exactly the same as how I coached and how I was then coached before, even as a, as a child. And, and it's all about how, you know, how do you behave? What is your attitude like? How do you want to represent yourself and how do you take care of other people? Um, that was the biggest thing, you know, in college, 
you know, college tennis is kind of known for the screaming and, and all that stuff. We didn't do that. You know, we're going to be professionals. This is how we, how this was our mode and how we developed ourselves as people. This is how we're going to express ourselves on the court. Um, and that was, that was important to me, you know, um, rather than kind of, okay, this is, maybe it would have been better for us to be like that. You know, maybe we would have won more matches, but it, that wasn't in me. And so that's not how I was going to lead for here with, with Barnes. We, you know, we can get upwards to 80, 90, sometimes a hundred employees. It's the same thing. How are we going to treat each other? Uh, it's very, it's got to be personal to me. It's got to be relationship based um, in that sense to really uh, build the team, but then to do a lot of the big things we do or to achieve results uh, you've got to have that feeling as a as a team, right? And and um, got to have that feeling from your leader. So I have, you know, I report to boards and I report to chairmen or presidents, and they give me that freedom to do these things. I got to give that freedom to my team or my players, right? And to me, freedom is what um, provides results, right? And that's what big when big things happen, it's because somebody has some freedom to do stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that makes a lot of sense in terms of, you know, that freedom, that autonomy piece to, you know, some for somebody to be able to make their own decisions, um, whether that's within their training, whether that's as an employee, whether that's, you know, in different different aspects. Um, but you have to have sorry to interrupt you. Go, go in order for to it. Have freedom. You have to have discipline. And so that's another part to what we're always evolving. In. And uh, as a coach, as a CEO, whatever. It doesn't matter if you're in sport or business. The more disciplined you are, the more freedom you're going to have. So that's had to make that statement. <laughs> yeah. Extreme Thank ownership, you. right? That's uh, Jocko Willink and Leaf Bab and talk about that. Yeah. You know, John, I mean, and John Nelson, you know, before that, years and years ago, discipline equals freedom. He would say that to us mm. in the 90s. And so when I, when I saw Jocko and he, his uh, jujitsu studio is just down the road from here, I was like, oh my God, I love it. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. That is very cool. Can you tell us a little bit of, I, I know you touched on a little bit your time as a coach. Um, and I know, you know, that after, you know, after you played on the satellite tour, after you, um, you know, after college and everything that you went that route, can you tell us a little bit about, about that? And, you know, maybe what a little bit about your coaching philosophy and, and also, you know, relating to the mental side of the game, the, the approach that you took with athletes in terms of, you know, maybe using some of, you know, your background and, and also some of these, um, you know, aspects of meditation and visualization and breathing and some of these different pieces that, that you brought up earlier and, and how that um, informed sort of your coaching, uh, your coaching philosophy and how you went about things as a coach. Yeah. So two words come to mind when I coached. Um, still, still very, very much uh, prevalent today. But I was ultra competitive and ultra curious. So ultra competitive, which was good and bad, right? So I, I probably lost matches for my team, you know, and the players because I was so competitive and so intense. I probably made them too tight, which got me to realize that. And I, and the one thing as a coach and as a CEO um, that I still do is I have my own mentors and, and coaches myself to help me. And um, there was pivotal times, you know, when I was a coach that they said, Ryan, you got to back off. Like we, we, everybody knows how much you want it. Everybody knows how much you care about them, but back off and find some different ways. So that really helped me again, come back to, okay, this is what I learned at San Diego state and be about being present, accepting um, 
letting go of results and stuff, I need to do that as a coach as well, right? Because now I was, I went into the coach mode of, I got to win. I want a better job. I want to make more money, you know, all of those other expectations. So I got very curious, which then brought me back to coaching in a very more emotional and mindful way. I hope, you know, that was my intention at least. And so I did everything from bringing the visualization techniques, the meditation techniques. Um, I worked with a, a gentleman named Greg Warburton for many years as a coach, and we did a lot of tapping. So I taught my players how to do tapping for the sidelines or or whatnot. So that was a really big part to my coaching. Um, I've tried to bring that here to Barnes as well, so that the kids have this opportunity to get you know, those kind of trainings as well. Um, but ultimately, what it comes back down to is I tried to make sure my players were developing as people, had these tools for on and off the court. Um, I saw that they really did make strides in their games and and in results by having these tools. Um, and it created the self-efficacy that gave them the opportunities to develop. Um, I coached at a small mid-major um, university and was recruiting guys that, you know, mid, you know, power fives were not recruiting and a lot of them developed to getting to the finals of challengers to getting on the ATP tour. I really, it wasn't me. It was the tools. I think that really helped them um, believe in themselves and allow their talents to come out. And even if they weren't that talented, have that edge um, in, in their, in their competitiveness. Yeah, and it sounds like through the use of the tools, you actually were putting your players and, and now maybe your employees <coughs> in a place where they can succeed. Right mm -hmm. in an environment that allows them to succeed, it doesn't put too much pressure on them. Where they're maybe thinking about what they have to lose in this situation, etc. You're helping them really kind of flourish more and creating an environment around them that that creates perhaps you know an optimal performance situation. And I'm you know, and I think that's a that's part of the, what a coach should be doing, right? Because the part about the next job or more money more kind of ego-driven stuff, that'll happen if you put your people in a position in which they can flourish, yeah. you know? And yeah, so I think that's what, that's what I like to, that's what, that's what I'm hearing. And I think that's really a big part of one's coaching philosophy, right? And then this desire to be a great learner reminds me of Bill Walsh and his, mm -hmm. his quote around, um, you know, when the environment is dedicated to learning, the results take care of themselves, and the more that you can buy into that, yeah, the more curious you can become. And then just the better your organization becomes because we're all great learners. We're all motivated to be better in that yeah. way. Um, so I'm curious now, you're, you're the CEO of Barnes Tennis Center. You've got a lot of cool events going on there. Can you talk about some of the things that are coming up, Ryan, uh, you know, from yeah. a tennis perspective and, and what you guys are doing? Yeah, yeah. So I'm the CEO of Youth Tennis San Diego, which is a nonprofit organization and, and it, that owns Barnes Tennis Center. Um, it was formerly the San Diego tennis patrons that started in 1952. So this organization has been around a long time in San Diego to, to, uh, develop junior tennis. Uh, Michael Chang used to get tons of sponsorships and grants through the patrons, Angel Lopez, um, all the San Diego greats, uh, you know, really came through this organization. So very, very lucky to be here. Grateful. Um, we have a, a an outreach program where we go into the inner city areas in San Diego. We provide all the equipment, the coaching. Uh, we pay for everything so that kids can learn to play tennis and and hopefully kind of go through a pathway uh, to get to Barnes and and play these tournaments that we have. Um, so that's the mission of the organization. 
we're really lucky to have this beautiful 16 acre facility. Um, I was hired May 1st, 2020. And um, my goal, uh, I had many, I have many goals, but you know, a big part of it was to um, transform San Diego tennis, uh, transform the Barnes Tennis Center and make this really the Mecca of, of tennis in the, in the United States, if not the world. And, um, and so we have just a great team, uh, very, very uh, accomplished, highly competitive uh, employees here that just want to develop and want to do the best they can. Um, and from that, we've developed a ton of great programs here. Uh, we have the jump program, which is um, it's a program where we pay for all of the entry fees for junior circuit events, level seven events. And we're now bringing that on to level or the lowest level ITF junior events as well. So we have hundreds of kids that are playing for free and competing. Um, we have a junior uh, program that's developing national champions, um, international champions, pros uh, through the Steve Adamson Tennis Academy. Um, in the fall, we are going to be, and this is the first time I've publicly said it, but in the fall, we're going to open up a full-time tennis academy um, that we also then eventually will do Padel and Pickleball with that. Um, so we have great programs that that we offer here. Uh, February 24th, we have a WTA 500 that we run at the Barnes Tennis Center. I'm the tournament director of um, we have the Billie Jean King Junior Nationals, girls 16s and 18s. Um, we have a J300 ITF. What I'm really excited about is all the ITF tournaments that we're bringing to Barnes. So if they all get approved, we'll have, I believe, 10 juniors, junior ITF tournaments here, which is going to change the landscape of San Diego tennis, Southern Cal tennis, and American tennis. If you look at all these other countries that are having, you know, they'd have tons of ITF junior events. Um, the U.S. in partnership with the SETA and the USTA, we're trying to bring as many as we can here to Barnes. And um, you know what we saw in November, we had a, a, a I think it was a J30 or 60. Our local kids who are you know playing level fours, level fives, are beating some of these you know seated international players that have these high rankings because and 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 they're beating them because the talent's there. They just don't have access to these events. And so I'm really excited about that and, um, uh, you know, just the pathways and the programs we have for Barnes. That That's awesome. No, I, and, and where did the, I, I really love the, and, and I think, yeah, the, the mission of providing, you know, free access to, to these events and to, you know, giving people access to, to training. And obviously with a sport like tennis, I think traditionally it has been, you know, a country club sport in certain ways yep. and, you know, not had, you know, so many people have not had the access that, you know, maybe other sports, you know, it's a, a little bit easier for somebody to practice and, and start playing a sport where tennis can be more technical requires more, you know, individualized training. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about sort of, you know, the, I guess the idea behind that mission of, you know, really trying to increase the accessibility of the sport to people of all different backgrounds? Yeah. So before I was hired here, uh, we have a great, we have several case studies. We'll use one of them. He's he's a coach now for us here, Ivan Thama. Um, Ivan got his master's, played for Grant Chan at SMU, played at UC Davis, won Kalamazoo, uh, I think 16s or 18s doubles. Um, he grew up in City Heights, which is uh, uh, not an affluent area in San Diego, um, inner city, dangerous. He grew up at Urban Village, where we have programs now. Um, you know, played for free. Eventually, came to Barnes, got sponsored, 
Um, and that's our dream. You know, our dream is to replicate that over and over and over again. And we haven't accomplished that yet, but that's our, that's our motive. Right? That's, that's the, that's what, you know, drives me right now and drives the staff is we got to get more kids like that. And that's why we have those programs. Um, and, uh, you know, and so we, whether they go on to, to win Kalamazoo or not, I haven't got a, a degree, right. He got a master's through these values and these skills through tennis. And so that's the, the mission behind it. That's why we do it. Um, what I found was, like you said, it's a country club sport and we're like, okay, well, we have hundreds, if not thousands of kids playing, uh, playing tennis, but they're never going to play a tournament. They're never going to get a ranking. They're not going to ever get this because they can't afford it. Right. And at the lowest levels, you know, when I got out of college coaching and then I started to see, all right, this junior event costs what? And they just lost O and O and they're done in a day. Well, that's not going to, that's not going to grow the game. Right. So that's where the, the jump program started. The, it's called the junior underwriting master plan for tournaments. And now we have hundreds of kids are playing level sevens where, you know, what I saw was clubs were, were um, canceling those tournaments because there's not enough kids registering. Now we actually have to cap them and we have kids coming from LA and orange County. A lot of them probably could pay for it, but we tell them just take more lessons, put it back into your club, get yourself better, but continue to play these things. So that's why we do what we do. Um, we think it's really unique. We think that we're growing the game and that's our responsibility and, and what really drives us. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic way to do it. And I mean, if you think about it, tennis is such a, from a physical perspective, such a unique sport because, you know, it involves a lot of the speed and power of other sports that, you know, maybe underserved populations would tend to play like basketball or football, right? There's a lot of power in tennis, but there's also the possibility of that you have to do it for a very long time. Mm -hmm. You know, your match could go anywhere from 30 minutes to maybe three and a half, four hours, right? And there's a, that's a pretty cool challenge in terms of how does one train? How does one get better at this sport? Along with the fact that you're out there by yourself and yep. trying to figure it out and you're coaching and you're the line judge. I mean, I think there's such good stuff going on in the sport that that's great for all populations. Um, but you also mentioned pickleball and padel. And I'm really curious about like, what is the racket sport community like at the Barnes Tennis Center? Um, you know, who's involved in all the different sports and, you know, what's sort of the growth plan for, for Padel and Pickleball for you? Yeah. Um, so we started with Padel in 2021 and uh, we, we first installed three courts and now we have seven. We just had, we have a pop-up court that we put on our stadium court for the Pro Padel League All-Stars uh, in November. But uh, that is, you know, a fantastic sport to me. I, I love it. I play it. Um, I I run uh, as a as a partner and CEO of Tactica Padel, uh, where we're installing facilities throughout California. Um, and so I see the growth in it, and it's a it's a to me it's just an awesome sport. It's different than tennis, but very similar, very similar to squash, uh, very complementary to tennis. Um, you know, it's like I always say, it's like doubles in the nineties. Um, without serve, right? But then you have the glass to use. Um, so really love that. It's a it's a great sport for us at Barnes. Uh, we have a great community. It's a very international community. Um, starting to become much more American though. We're starting to see a lot of just locals starting to play it. A lot of people from tennis transitioning. Um, we run a ton of tournaments as well. We we uh, we've hosted uh, last month 
and in two weeks, the the USPA Masters. So we're, you know, along the lines of tennis, I'm trying to be the, the providers and the promoters to grow the game. That's what we're doing with Padel. And then in October, we built 19 pickleball courts here at Barnes, um, which has been really, really great for us. We don't take tennis courts away. You know, we're we're not taking courts away to add anything, um, but we're lucky because we have land to do that. Uh, we have probably 120 people at this moment playing pickleball um, in open play right now. And the unique thing about us is, is you know, they're all designated lit professional pickleball courts. So it's really nice to play on them. We're in a young area and, you know, the stereotypes of pickleball is for old people or for people that, you know, are athletes. That's not true, right? We have young people. Most of our people are young, 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, we have older people that play, but they're athletic. Uh, they're cross, you know, they're cross training and playing pickleball. Um, at any given time, you have four or five major league pickleball players out here playing. So it's just created a great racket sport community. Um, I think, and I hope our reputation at Barnes is that we're just this inclusive sport sporting center that's growing all sports, you know, and that's, I think that's, what's happening. That's, that's awesome. And and obviously within the U S pickleball, I think, I don't think I'm saying this for the first time for anybody, but obviously these last, you know, however many years pickleball has obviously really taken off. And I know it's been the fastest growing sport in, in the U S in recent years. And, and I know Padel also, you know, I, I think within Europe and South America and, and different, different countries around the world has really been big for a while. And I think the U S I know in, in the last couple of years has started to get big. And I, I played the sport for the first time in October down in Buenos Aires and, oh, wow. and absolutely loved it. Yeah. And, and I agree. I mean, it's definitely has a lot of transferable. There's definitely a lot of transferable skills from tennis where, you know, things like volleys and, um, you know, things like that sort of, um, half volleys, you know, picking, yeah. picking the ball up on the rise, things like that. Um, but also there's a lot of unique attributes in terms of playing the angles and dealing with the ball off the glass, almost like racquetball or squash or a sport like that. Um, what would you say are maybe some of the, um, you know, some of the unique qualities from a mental standpoint, some of the maybe challenging aspects or some of the, um, aspects of the sport mentally that, um, that are, are relevant when somebody starts to play the sport? Yeah, it's a good question. I think when you talk about, so I, I don't play much pickleball. I actually played a tournament last weekend and I loved it. But I don't play much. So I play a lot of padel and obviously tennis. When I think of competition, though, and what you're asking, I think of pressure, right? So if you're competing, you're one, how do you control your opponent? And how do you apply pressure and handle pressure? And so that goes in all racket sports and every sport. With padel, the pressure slows down because you want to play slower. Whereas in tennis, you want to be aggressive. You want to hit winners, right? You want to pressure them. You almost have to slow that down. So the problem solving starts to change. And I, and I think the biggest thing with Padel is uh, you, you start to problem solve a little differently than tennis. You actually let the ball go by you, right? You start to play a little bit more passive, yet you still have to be aggressive when the ball is in front of you with your overheads. Um, points last sometimes minutes, right? Because the rallies are going on forever because of that cat and mouse chess-like play, which is unique to Padel. Um, and so, you know, to me, it's like, uh, it's anything. When I go out there, um, I just played a friendly game on Monday 
And one of the guys I played with was hitting extremely high lobs, right? When those lobs are coming, I mean, actually, because of the time, the mental turmoil started to happen in my mind, even at this level, right? I'm like, all right, he's, he's you know, what are they doing? There's pressure and so high. Am I going to miss this? So it's just like any sport, you know, and, and very much like tennis, you know, it, it's you still have to deal with all the same things. But strategically and competitively, Padel is very passive and slower in the sense, which creates different mental um, blocks and challenges. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I just wanted to say, if, if if anyone hasn't seen Padel, um, hasn't played it or hasn't seen it, look, search on YouTube, P-A-D-E-L, and look up some highlights. Um, yeah. Some of the highlights of people running outside of the court <laughs> or outside of the cage to, you know, to, to somehow make a defensive play and somehow get the ball back in on the other side of the court is just unbelievable. So I would encourage everyone to check that out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, I was saying, you know, for tennis players to transition to something like padel or even squash or racquetball. You know, in college, I played a lot of handball. You know, I found myself running into corners and running at the walls and not doing what you were saying, Ryan, of letting the ball go by you and being yeah. patient enough. And it, it's a, that could be a real challenge because the footwork in tennis is a little bit unique. Yeah. Where it may not always work in a squash or... Um, yeah, some of these other sports, right? So there is even, yeah, we can probably because of tennis be pretty good with the with the pa- that paddle or the the racket or whatever. But some of the footwork skills are definitely going to get challenged as long as well as your patience for playing yeah, those it, longer points. It'll be interesting to see how how Americans develop paddle, uh, padel, and even the British, right? Because we come from the tennis background, we don't want a ball to go by us. Yeah. When I play with traditional paddle players from Spain, they always comment like, oh, you don't let the ball go by you. So it's very difficult to play you. So I'm very interested in five, 10 years when we start to get more tennis players playing a lot more at a higher level, will we, will we change the game a little bit Yeah. or will we add to it? You know, if you're a tennis player, are we going to be, do we have a competitive advantage by being able to take the ball off the rise? I don't know. Um, I don't think so yet because uh, paddle players, you know, uh, the other really cool thing about paddle is you have paddle players that never played tennis and they're very good and they have very good technique and skills, which is super interesting to me because I'm like, well, if you're going to be good at any racket sport, you have to play tennis. It's like the king sport, right? Um, that's not the case with it. You know, you have all these players that are top in the world that would completely kill any top ATP player or WTA player that never grew up playing tennis. So it's it's really really fun and 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 it's unique in that in its own way for sure. Very cool. Um, I yeah. I, I mean, I think you know, in in terms of some of the main questions that I had in mind, I think we've we've covered a lot of them. Um, I guess you know. So w- one of my main questions, and I think you you definitely covered this um, to some extent, is you know what's coming up as you look at you know the next three five however many years. Um, what what do you see as sort of the growth of you know both uh, padel and pickleball and and tennis within you know with with everything that you guys are doing? So what what are some of the things that you're most excited about in in the upcoming years? Yeah, a couple of things uh, that come to mind. So one, I'm really trying to learn, and I think I I think we all know what it is. But so pickleball, why it's so popular? Padel, fastest growing sport in the world. Um, how do we use those sports to help grow tennis? 
And that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm sure I'm trying to figure out. So we know that they're so pickleball and Padel are so popular because they're social, right? They uh, obviously less skill level. How do we take those, those attributes and the positives that are growing those sports and bring it to tennis? So, you know, for me in three years, how do I get more adults playing tennis here at Barnes? We are, I mean, our junior programs, um, because of the nature of tennis, where there's a pathway, right? You have high school tennis, college tennis, um, fill up our junior programs because kids have these dreams and parents have these, you know, they have goals, right? You want to play college tennis or you want to have a sport of a lifetime. So how do we, how do we, you know, create the bridge between all of these sports to help tennis get bigger? That's what I really would like to do um, while we continue to grow Padel and Pickleball and create this kind of racket sport community where they're all playing together. So the 150 people that are playing Pickleball right now, how do I get them to play tennis and Padel and vice versa? That's what I would like to see. I think that helps grow tennis. Um, I'm a tennis player. I'm a Padel player. I actually, like I said, I played Pickleball. I had a great time. Um, but that's what I see in three to five years that we're going to have to solve. Um, and I think the sport's going to have to solve that um, at just a foundational level to stay relevant and to grow. You know, we can talk about how is the pro tour doing. Uh, we can talk about all those things, but really, it's really important because when you talk about college tennis in America, that is a staple for junior tennis, right? And so we have to be careful of that. We have to watch all those things. So, you know, we're running a business here and we have a mission to serve kids, but we're also looking at the whole kind of landscape of how do we stay relevant? How do we push it um, for the sport? And so that's what I see um, in Padel, uh, a part of what we do here. Barnes is also the home of the San Diego Stingrays, which is a new franchise in the Pro Padel League. So we're trying to grow this um, sport in the United States and North America at a professional level as well. So, you know, like when you asked me that, I got so many things, right? I, I, we need to make the WTA the best event it can be. So I've got a lot going on. Um, the team is working really hard on on accomplishing all of this. I think it's That's, great. That... Oh, go ahead, Josh. Go ahead, I was just going to say, I think it's great to get people to play the different sports just so they can appreciate all of them. Um, yeah. I'm not sure how this is in, in your community, Ryan, but yeah, I live in Boston and, you know, there's, there can be some rivalry between say pickleball players and tennis players and the use of facilities. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes it's, it's a bit acrimonious, but I think when you get people to play both, you can appreciate both and grow all of those or all three of yeah. those things. So I think that that's uh, a really good goal for yeah. what you're, what you're trying to do. Um, because they're all great sports and they all, you know, test you in different ways. And so I think that that's, uh, that's fantastic. And it's great to hear all the great, you know, the, the cool things that you have going on at, yeah. at the, at the Barnes Tennis Center. Now there was one sport we haven't talked about, but, uh, it's popular here in where I live. Yeah. And it's sort of a cousin, I guess. And I think it started in California, but it's sort of a cousin of pickleball and padel and that's spec tennis. Mm -hmm. which is sort of like Padel played on a pickleball court, but with an yeah, orange yeah. ball. Yeah. And no kitchen. Yeah, balls. yeah it's it's like, yeah, I, I I watched it online a lot and I think it's great. And, I, and I'd and like to add it here for junior development. I yeah. think that spec tennis could be a great way to get to, I don't, I don't want to say take away the red ball junior development, but almost in a way because 
it's easier, right? And you can probably develop better technique and skills with it. So I, I actually have been seeing it as like, and I'm thinking, okay, we could add spec tennis to pickleball for our tennis programs. <laughs> um, and, and I haven't played it, but you know, I, I do have it on my horizon of something that can help development. Yeah. Cause Dave Fish, the former men's tennis coach at Harvard, he's a big yeah. proponent of that here. And I think actually Magnus Norman's Good to Great Academy has a version of it. It's not exactly spec tennis. It's a slightly larger court, but they're doing it with the same sort of paddles, yet green ball. Oh, cool. And they're using it, as you just said, an intro to tennis and building foundational skills. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like platform. I think platform tennis is, is very similar to spec without the uh, fence, you know? Right. Yep. Right. Because you're, it's like you're playing tennis, but yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot of plat. I grew up in Connecticut and there's a lot of platform in Connecticut and I think Northeast and different, different yeah. places. Um, and yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I'm, I've played, you know, probably every racket sport or at least a little bit. Um, I used to work at the tennis hall of fame and they had, um, you know, a, a unique sport there. Um, you know, real tennis or court tennis as it's, as it's called, which is actually the sport where tennis originated from sort of, a you know, back in, uh, Victorian times, um, which is just unique sport as well. Sort of, a a asymmetrical racket, asymmetrical wooden racket, a harder ball. Um, but I think there, there's definitely things that, you know, first of all, from playing some of these different racket sports, you, you work on different aspects of your game that you probably wouldn't work on. Um, but I think it, yeah, definitely, as Brian said, definitely leads to a certain, uh, appreciation, um, for, you know, different types of athletes. Um, and I know what, one thing we really haven't talked about that I think we would be great to, to dive into a little bit, um, is the WTA event. And I know this is coming right up. I know it's in February. I actually attended it in, uh, October of 2022, which I, I really enjoyed. Um, actually, if you go to the tennis IQ podcast, Instagram page, there's a photo of, of, of Iga and myself, um, at the tournament awesome. from, from there, which was fun. Um, and yeah, I, I know actually before we started recording, you mentioned, um, I forget the exact name, but, um, something about, I think it was, you know, mental health or mental sort of the, how you guys are prioritizing, um, you know, mental aspects of the sport and sort of the well being of, um, of the, of athletes that are involved within the tournament. Uh, do you think you could tell us a little bit more about the tournament itself and yeah. about that, that mission on the mental side? Yeah. Yeah. So the tournament's a WTA 500. Um, we're really excited about it. It's the week before Indian Wells. So we're really hoping to have a great field I think in 22, we had 16 of the top 20 players in the world. So it was a great field. Um, but the initiative that we started is called the women in wellness. And, and the, the premise behind it is, you know, all, all of our sponsors, our major sponsors come from some kind of wellness background, uh, symbiotica through supplements, uh, Rady children's hospital, uh, ResMed, which is a company that that uh, solves sleep apnea and sleep deficiencies. Um, so we started to target, okay, how can our sponsors grow their platform and how can we help uh, our tournament, one, and utilize that within uh, the WTA and the players, right? And, and start to expose how women are taking care of themselves and find better solutions. So using the platform from YTSD and Barnes, where we're out in the inner city, it's kind of this uh, comprehensive package that we have for our sponsors that ultimately then uh, educate and empower and provide resources for women. And um, 
what we were talking about before we started recording were some of our Q and A sessions where we're we're doing with, uh, uh, for instance, Danielle Collins. Um, uh, who else? I mean, you name it. We bring out the ladies out there, and we ask like, "What are you doing for your mental game? What are you doing for sleep? What are you doing?" And it's just been really, really um, received well because we're starting to get exposed to how these professional athletes are just people. Right. And we're not talking about how they how, how they hit this forehand or their backhand or their strategy. We're talking about real things that they have to do on a day-to-day basis to become better people. So it's been really, really fun. Um, we've had, you know, uh, sports psychologists come out to do the Q and A's, um, a, a dear friend of mine who works and, um, uh, has presented to the Dalai Lama comes out and asks these really, really unique questions and stuff. And so just creating a new spin on it, you know, and I, I kind of go back to, well, that was what we were doing back in the, you know, late nineties and stuff when I was playing and what really transformed for me um, now and exposing that, you know, and I think it's really important for young people to hear what Coco's doing and um, you know, the best players, because it's all relevant you know, and, and it affects our daily lives. So that's the, you know, that's the initiative behind the WTA, uh, San Diego open. I think it's a great initiative. Um, because, you know, especially professional tennis is very challenging. We, we actually did a, an episode on the different lifestyle challenges of professional tennis and how it, it, it can affect one's mental health. And it's very difficult. And I think the more that more support can be brought to the professional players, the better, for sure. And so I, th- I love that, what, what you're doing there, Ryan. Um, so as we wrap up today, you know, what are some ways for people to, to connect with you, to connect with what's going on at Barnes, maybe even visit you in person? Um, you know, how can people get in touch and follow you? Yeah, um, pretty easy. Barnes Tennis Center, if you want to come out, I'm, I'm here. Um, we have, you know, our Tactica Padel site is here. Sometimes I'm traveling around um, at our other sites and whatnot. But Barnes Tennis Center, our website, uh, barnstenniscenter.com. We have our social media um, as well on Instagram, Facebook. I'm pretty uh, involved in in my Instagram and LinkedIn um, for updates. Um, I think it's, what is it? Ryan Redondo underscore CEO Barnes Tactica. I don't know. You, you can find me. It's easy to find people, but uh, I, I give a lot of updates on what I'm doing and what we're doing here on social media. Um, and then always you can email me rredondo at ytsd.org. Um, if you have questions or if anybody listening wants to collaborate on anything or needs advice, uh, you can go there too. Great. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Ryan. It's a great conversation. And uh, you know, I know we love what you're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. Love the questions and being able to talk about the things that you guys provide and, and offer to uh, tennis players and all people. So keep it up and thank you very much. Well, that was an awesome conversation with Ryan Redondo. Um, I would say for me, one of the big the biggest takeaways was really the the mission and the purpose behind so much of what they're doing. Um, you know, whether it be working with junior athletes and you know helping to improve accessibility for tennis, which is, you know, I think historically and currently been been a real challenge where, you know, people of, of different types of backgrounds don't always have access to the sport or access to, you know, training and lessons and things like that. So they're giving, you know, people free access to playing in tournaments as well as, 
you know, as, as, as well as, you know, training for, for people of all different types of backgrounds, which I think is awesome. And also what they're doing with their WTA tournament, you know, the fact that they're really taking this proactive uh, approach to, to health um, with, with women's tennis players, with the WTA tournament, but also, you know, also having events relating to mental health and that sort of thing, I think is, is really admirable. And I think to, to me, that was, um, yeah, definitely one of the biggest takeaways um, from the conversation. And I, I think it's, you know, I think it's something that, that everybody really can apply. People can think about how they can, you know, with whatever they're doing at a professional standpoint, on the tennis court, with, with whatever they're doing, can you take more of a purpose-based approach and really, you know, rather than just going through the motions or just doing something for the sake of doing it, can, you know, can you find maybe deeper reasons for doing things? And it seems like for Ryan, a lot of that stems from, you know, from his background and his introduction to the sport and, you know, some of the aspects related to the mental game that we talked about in this conversation, you know, things that, you know, he had been introduced to from a young age, things like meditation and visualization, controlling the controllables, things like that, that we also talk about in this podcast, but it seems like he's taking some of the, some of the values I would say that are connected to that and really applying that to a lot of the work that, that he does today, which I thought was really cool. I'm glad you highlighted the purpose part, Josh. You know, we, we had an episode recently where we contrasted a performance-based identity versus a purpose-based identity. And, um, I think the more that we find purpose in what we do, whether that is tennis or like with Ryan, it's been tennis, but it's also now kind of the mission at Barnes. It leads to that deeper, more intrinsic motivation, that stronger drive and fire to continue to do what you're doing. Uh, And so I think this is a great and inspirational story around purpose. I think if I take it to the next level, what I also like, Josh, was something he learned as part of being a college coach and now he's applied it to being CEO, is this idea of helping either either your athletes or your employees really flourish in what they can do, right? And really working with them as who they are so that they have, you know, the freedom and the autonomy. You use freedom a lot as a, as a word there. And I think that that's good. And, you know, the, the idea of discipline leads to freedom. Um, but in, in reality, when we're talking about you know, employees and players, it's giving them the autonomy, giving them control over how to shape things and let them flourish in that environment. You know, and that's one of, if we go back to like a psychology-based theory, you know, it goes back to self-determination theory. What motivates people oftentimes is autonomy, giving them this sense that they are in control, they have the choice to do things. And then, of course, in his leadership position, he can be helping them foster discipline, et cetera. So they have this, you know, this freedom or autonomy to do what they need to do. So I thought that was a really cool, cool part of what he's doing. Yeah, because they do have big goals there. And it's, uh, as a leader, you have to make sure you're assembling a great team and then allow them to do the work uh, so they can achieve those, those goals. So that's our show for today. Thank you for listening. And once again, thanks to Ryan Redondo for Uh, appearing on the show with us. For more on today's episode, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for the two of us, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you're enjoying the content that Josh and I discuss on the show, please rate and review the podcast so other tennis enthusiasts can find it more easily. 
Additionally, to be notified of new episodes, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube. And you can also check us out on Instagram. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash podcast slash membership, where you can learn about the benefits of being part of the Tennis IQ podcast community. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode. Thank <music> you.